And take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 17. As we continue looking at the life of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, as I say often, it's an opportunity for us to marvel at the Spirit of God and His wisdom that, again, um, no matter who you are or what your situation is today, uh, the Spirit of God wrote this for you. Um, He's written it for a lot of other saints that have read it a lot of other times, perhaps you reading it other times as well. But with you in mind today, this is God's word for you, for all of his people. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give light and life. You know our frailty. I'm a weak man. We are weak listeners. Our hearts do not easily hear your word. Our mouths do not easily speak it. And so we ask instead that this would be an endeavor of the Spirit, where he would speak to himself. Speak the word and then hear it in our hearts. For Christ's sake, amen.
It's a moment of panic I'm assuming that many of you can relate to, perhaps not all of you. It's the moment where you walk into the laundry room, you open the washer, you look down at your pristine load of whites that are not so white anymore. For me, it's always a dress sock, right? A brand new navy dress sock that somehow manages to sneak into my load of whites and my dress shirt is no longer a white dress shirt. It's a slightly tinted blue dress shirt. In fact, actually, uh, many of my t-shirts, I have the ones that you can tell were in the navy load, and you can tell the ones that were in the red load. So I have pink t-shirts and blue t-shirts, all of which used to be white. I think the worst was when I was uh, in seminary, and I, I used to carry ballpoint pens, and I would always stick them right there in my shirt so that I always had a pen ready to take notes and then would forget when I took it off and leave it. Oh boy, you want to talk about getting that out of the laundry. Well, what's happening? Right? As a kid, you, know, you certainly have some sort of kind of existential pondering, like how come the whites never stain the darks? Right? How come when I open the washer, I, I never have a situation where my navy sock comes out white? How awesome would that be, Right? You chuck in your your red t-shirt by accident, you open your laundry, and ah, it's pink and everything else is bright white. Why is it that it's always the darker colors that run into the lighter colors? Well, uh, I suspect that if we really kind of, again, be a little bit existential about how we think of this, is it's a higher order bleeding over into a lower order. It's something more powerful, something stronger, bleeding over into something weaker, something more limited. The, the white shirts are not as strong, they're not as of an excellent order as the darker colors and therefore the dark bleeds into them. The passage that we read today is one of my favorite passages in contemplating kind of that that barrier between the spiritual world and the physical world as we understand them. And what we get to watch is where three disciples witness that the barrier isn't quite as strong as we think it is. They've been laboring with Jesus for many years at this point. They've been traveling with him. They think they know him. In fact, even in just previous chapters, they've confessed that he's the Son of God. They believe that he is divine. But they haven't yet fully appreciated what it means that he is divine, they, they understand that he's the son of God, but they're not appreciating kind of the fullness of the higher order, the greater, grander, more powerful life of heaven kind of bleeds into creation for just a moment. Now, to understand the significance of it, it it really is important to think about chapter 17 in light of chapter 16. Chapter 16 is where they kind of finally get it, and they confess that Jesus is the Messiah. This is kind of the major turning point, the first of the major turning points in Jesus' ministry. 
up to this point, he's been laboring largely with the crowds. He's been laboring with his enemies. He's kind of had everybody around giving the disciples opportunity to watch and to learn and to understand and believe. But in chapter 16, everything changes. That's when it, it clicks in their mind that, oh, you're the son of God. And after that point, Jesus basically spends the rest of his time only with his disciples. He gets rid of the crowd. Interestingly, he gets rid of his enemies. We don't really see them again for another couple of chapters. And he spends intense, particular time with his disciples, building on this confession to help them understand and grow. Well, why does he do that? Well, because we know the rest of the story and the next turning point in his ministry is where he's going to move from kind of teaching them to setting his face toward Jerusalem and going intentionally to die. And again, for us, I think as kind of New Testament Christians removed for a couple of thousand years, it's easy for us to emotionally understand and appreciate that Jesus wins. So when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, it it hurts our soul, but we're happy even as we think about that. The cross becomes this kind of symbol of beauty and joy for Christians instead of the just object of terror that it would have been for everybody else uh, in that period in history. As a result, also, we tend to think of the disciples as kind of forgetting their feelings. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies and like they panic and you know what? Fair enough. Right on, guys. Like, the Son of God just died in front of you. They don't know what to do with that. Now, we know he wins, but they haven't fully understood that. We lose the kind of emotional punch that the passage has as we contemplate their sense of of loss and confusion and, and just being overwhelmed with the death of Jesus Christ. And the question that in that moment would have been the question for them The question that would have become the question for them even as after the resurrection. The question that would have become the question for them even as they one at a time died a martyr's death. Is Jesus worth it? You see, that's actually a large part of what the ministry of Jesus is occupied with at this point is he's instructing them with with who he is and what he's uh, about, what his mission is about, but it's really fixing in their minds the answer to that question. Is Jesus worth it? Right? Of the three men that are here, one of them is going to be martyred shortly after Jesus is. Not that long. It's going to be an awful way to die. Of the two that remain, their lives are going to be extremely complicated. One will eventually be martyred. The other will be uh, punished in a separate way. Of the disciples, most of them are martyred in, again, very gruesome and awful fashions. And in fact, many of the early church members die terrible, terrible deaths for the name of Jesus Christ. Is he worth it? Is it worth following the Christ if it costs me my life? In fact, actually, Matthew set us up to be thinking about that, even with how he's ended the previous chapter. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? If you have everything the world has to offer, if you have money and success and fame and pleasure and people that you think that love you and what you seem to perceive as stability, if you have everything the world can offer, 
but you still have that hole in your soul. Is it worth it? We're going to look at this passage and hopefully find an answer to that as we kind of contemplate the beauty of the Lord Jesus. This passage told in all uh, three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each with a slightly bit of information on it. We uh, all have them kind of specifically lining this up chronologically. It's one of the very few uh, uh, instances or stories that's specifically anchored in time. This happens very shortly after their confession as to who Jesus is. Jesus, uh, they understand him to be the Christ, and about a week later, he takes them to the Mount of Transfiguration. He grabs Peter, James, and John, uh, three of his uh, close. It's interesting to think about that uh, Jesus arranged his life in circles. He had the large crowds that followed him but perhaps didn't know him. He had the large crowds of Christians that followed him but did know him. He had the most committed of Christians. He had his disciples. Then he had his small collection. Interestingly, he himself did not devote equal amounts of time and energy to each of them. These are his um, that he pours particular interest into. Leads him up onto a high mountain. We don't know which mountain it is. There's guesses. Nobody knows. All we know is that it's high and that it's lonely and that it's quiet. We find out from Luke that while they're up there, the day kind of uh, wears on and uh, the men, <laughs> they take a nap. They kind of rack out. They're, they're weary. They're whooped. Uh, ministry with Jesus, I know, is very taxing. Uh, it's intriguing how much you kind of catch the bits and pieces where they haven't eaten correctly or they haven't uh, slept correctly because they've worked so hard. You get the impression it's like soldiers today, right? I've never seen a soldier that sits down and doesn't immediately fall asleep in some fashion uh, when they're able to be kind of off duty. It's just exhausting labor. They fall asleep and uh, it's a moment that kind of wakes them up. Uh, The way that Matthew tells it, it's like they're, uh, it reads almost like they're awake when it starts. That's not actually the case. They're woken up by the transfiguration kind of bleary-eyed, can you imagine it? You're rubbing the sleep out of your eyes and you open your eyes and what on earth is happening? What on earth is happening? And that's actually the correct terminology. What on earth is happening? This isn't an interaction of earth. Heaven has leaked into creation. The glory of God has leaked into creation just like my dark sock bleaches all of the whites in the load. The glory of heaven is staining the creation. Now interestingly, it works backwards, doesn't it? They wake up, they open their eyes, and what does it look like? Well, before them, Jesus... Looks transfigured. Thanks. That's a really helpful word. Only word I ever use here. Doesn't make that much sense to me. Well, Matthew clarifies it, describing his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. 
This is Old Testament imagery that's eventually taken up in the book of Revelation. What's being described here is it's the glory of God kind of leaking out of His created body. It's, you get to see a glimpse of what heaven is like in this created body of a man. It's giving us a, a foretaste of what his resurrected body would be like. It's a different thing than what creation is designed to hold. Friends, don't kind of read this and just leave it in the kind of emotionally dry level of like, oh, he, you know, he used a really good load of bleach in his clothes, right? They're really bright white. Tide would love to have his clothes to market, perhaps gain, they bid for it. No, that's not what's happening here. It's radiating with an inner light of the glory of God so that it is overwhelming. We've seen, uh, interestingly, similar types of things happen in other parts of Scripture. Remember when Moses goes up onto the mountain to meet with God and he comes down and his face radiates the glory of God. And it's so disturbing that the Israelites are like, dude, you have to wear a mask. You've got to wear a veil. You've got to cover your face. We can't stand looking at you like that because the glory of God is radiating off of your face. Here, rather than radiating, reflecting, it's, it's proceeding from Him. He is the eternal God, clothed in glory. And as they wake up and kind of come to and, and kind of begin to observe what's happening, you have the God of all glory incarnate, glory incarnate, having a conversation with two dudes. And uh, I don't know how they identify them so quickly. We're not sure. We do know from Luke that they're actually able to uh, overhear part of the conversation before Peter starts running his mouth, certainly before he starts thinking. Moses and Elijah are standing there discussing with Jesus. And interestingly, what are they discussing? We find out they're discussing his death and his upcoming resurrection. They're talking about his departure from the created order. They're talking about his departure where he would return to heaven for a short time uh, after the cross. Remember, this is why it's so key when we confess the Apostles' Creed. He did not descend into hell after the cross. He descended into hell on the cross. When he says it is finished on the cross, the wrath of God is, is fully satisfied. There's no wrath left for his people. It is finished. Wrath is done. There's none left for Jesus after that point. Instead, when he dies on the cross, what does he do? He ascends to glory even in that moment. And interestingly, he's having a planning session with Moses and Elijah. It's absolutely staggering to think about. Prepping for his death and resurrection. And you think, well, why Moses and Elijah? That's odd. Actually, it is odd. We suspect there's two reasons why it's Moses and Elijah particularly. I think both of them are intriguing and highlight a key element. One, uh, Moses and Elijah function as the, the kind of the quintessential symbols uh, of the law and the prophets. Jesus, remember, he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. That's why we have the whole thing printed on the wall. Right? We don't get rid of the Old Testament. We believe in the Old Testament because Jesus is the fulfillment of it. 
Interestingly here, he's talking with Moses. Jesus isn't a different kind of guy than uh, Moses in the sense of worshiping a different God. Jesus is God in the New Testament. He is God in the Old Testament. It's the same God, the triune God. It's a continuation, Jesus fulfilling the law in Moses. Also, Jesus fulfilling the prophets. All that the prophets would write about God's wrath being poured out in the day of the Lord, it's poured out upon Jesus on the cross. All of the hope that would be shared in the coming day of the Lord, it's hope that is consummated in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I suspect there's a second reason, too, why it's Moses and Elijah, and I think it's intriguing that, again, Luke tells us that they're discussing his death. Because both Moses and Elijah have an asterisk next to their death. If you go back and you remember your Old Testament, right, how does Elijah die? He doesn't. He's one of the two guys that we know are taken directly to heaven. He doesn't die. So it's interesting that they're having a conversation about Jesus' departure because Elijah departed a different way, a way that most of us will never know until we get to glory. And Moses, interestingly, does as well. He's an asterisk. It's not uh, perhaps taken directly to heaven, but we find out from the end of his time. Remember, he dies up on the mountain, the Lord handles the body, and then you have this really unusual conversation about the angels disputing over the body of Moses. In fact, actually, Jewish literature treated both of these men, they were called the deathless ones. Kind of odd because we know Moses dies, but that's a different thing altogether. It's intriguing, though, that here you have this portrait of Jesus prepping for the resurrection, talking with the two guys that death was an asterisk for them. Men that, that aren't dead in the traditional sense as we tend to think of them. Prepping for his own death, the higher order bleeding over into creation. It makes sense what Peter does. Right? He, he is experiencing the glory of heaven in his flesh right there. It makes total sense as to what he does. This is amazing is what he basically responds with. I want this to last as long as possible. Right? Some of you, you have that, that feeling during your big family holiday meals. You ever hear somebody say something like, I wish I had two stomachs just so I could keep eating this delicious food. I wish it would last forever. Well, Peter, obviously not wishing for the two stomachs, instead offers something different. You know what I'll do? We have three distinguished guests. I'm going to build them a shelter. I'll I'll build them just sticks and stones, whatever we have. Build them a little bit of shade to make it a little bit easier. He's not, uh, we know actually from the vocabulary here, he's not talking about uh, permanent uh, dwellings. He's not talking about permanent houses or permanent temples. The words that's used is actually the word that later in Old Testament sense was tabernacle. It was a tent. It's just a temporary dwelling place that would provide a little bit of comfort, a little bit of hospitality. You get to see Peter is giving the response that humans are designed to have when they experience true glory, when they experience true goodness, and it is to say, I never want this to end. I never want it to go away. I want it to be like this forever. Forever. 
And I love that. It, what an, an object lesson in answering that question. Is Jesus worth it? Friends, whatever you have to give up for Jesus, is it worth it? And interestingly, Peter, he models us so beautifully that he interacts with real glory. And when he sees it, his, his brain is just kind of melted. And he says, I want this to last forever. It doesn't matter what it is I have to give up. I will take this forever. The psalmist echoes this in Psalm 84, right? Better is it to be in your house one day, God, than a thousand days elsewhere. It doesn't matter how good life is apart from Jesus. It's not worth it if he's not there. You have this amazing point, Peter begins to talk. Lord, it's great that you're here. It's great that we're here. I'm, I'm happy to be able to enjoy this. I want this to last forever. I'll make three shelters. That way you three can distinguish guests. It really, and again, he's not being a proud man. He's not talking about building six. Right? He's acknowledging he's not one of the distinguished guests. He's acknowledging that, look, this is, there's a glory here that is unique, that does not belong to me. I want to enjoy that for as long as possible. But interestingly, while he's still speaking, verse 5, the higher order bleeds through again. We've seen Christ dwelling in his own glory That was point one. We now see Christ dwelling in his Father's glory. While Peter is talking, saying, hey, we want to do this forever. I want to live like this forever. This is how life is supposed to be. God the Father drowns him out. I don't know what that voice sounded like, but friends, it was impressive. Verse 5. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We know this passage, but we we actually, when we read it, tend to skip over the first part of it and miss the theology that's at work here. While Peter was still speaking, when behold, right, that's your, anytime there's a behold in the passage, it's the, the design to be an exclamation point. They didn't use exclamation points the way that we do today. Anytime there is a behold, it is designed to catch your eyes and to catch your ears to know something significant is happening. Exclamation point, pay attention. What happens? Jesus, who is already radiant in glory, suddenly a bright cloud consumes them, might be a good word, envelops them. Mark and Luke make this a little bit clearer as they start. It's like with Peter, James, and John on the outside and the cloud just kind of absorbs them. And it's not a cloud like we think of today of the, you know, fluffy white ones or perhaps the dark ones that we know are going to bring rain and wind. This is a cloud of pure light. And it consumes them, envelops them. Now again, because many of us are not, you know, kind of really as well versed in our Old Testament as we ought to be, uh, this doesn't kind of prompt in our minds the uh, immediate thoughts it's supposed to provoke. 
It's supposed to call to our minds Ezekiel 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and further. It's designed to provoke in our minds Isaiah. It's designed to provoke in our minds uh, Exodus. Where when God interacts with His people, He wraps Himself not in a suit jacket, but in a cloud of inaccessible light. He wraps Himself in glory. So what's happening here in verse 5 is not just that Jesus is there in glory incarnate. What we have is the glory cloud of God the Father show up and begin to overshadow and envelop them and Jesus together. The created order, it's almost like it's tearing apart just a little bit as God is injecting His presence. The uncreated God is showing who He is inside creation. Remember, this is the glory cloud that when it showed up in Ezekiel's life, you remember what happened to Ezekiel, right? It basically puts him in almost a comatose state. Where he just goes and sits and doesn't do anything for like a week. Because it melts his brain. It is too much for him to process. It's sensory overload. It's so bad that God actually has to send his spirit to pick up Ezekiel and kick him in the rear end to get him moving. Because Ezekiel can't function anymore. The uncreated God has descended upon him and his created mind cannot process that much goodness and glory that same glory cloud has here shown up specifically in the presence of Christ and enveloped the three disciples I love you get to see they do the exact same thing that Ezekiel does they're very smart men when it comes to this This is where it goes from Peter saying, I'm having fun, I want this to last forever. To when he realizes what it's like to be a created being in God's very presence. Verse 6, they hear this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And that is something worth pondering there. An interaction with goodness that is so good that it's scary. An interaction with glory that is so glorious that it's terrifying. An interaction with power that is so powerful that it's unnerving. It's intriguing the change. We've seen Jesus residing in his own glory. But now the glory of the fullness of the triune God is injected inside creation. And then on top of it, you have this blessing that was given at his baptism, now given here at the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
I'm going to be honest with you. I think this is a point that I struggle with making for us as Americans listening to this, and largely because as Americans we've lost the concept of shame. I mean, we, we are a shameless people. The things that play on television, the things that play out in normal conversation, the things that we do, the way we live, it, it is amazing how just as Americans, because we're so focused on self, there's kind of no sense of collective, like, you should be ashamed of yourself. But interestingly, because we've lost a sense of kind of corporate shame, it's like we've lost a sense of corporate glory as well. We've lost a sense of corporate goodness, a a sense of corporate grandeur, because nothing is off limits anymore. Nothing ends up being impressive and ends up being great and ends up being staggering and shocking. And so we get to the disciples' response and we go, I don't understand that. What does it mean to be so good and so glorious that it scares me? Perhaps the closest that some of us will ever experience is if you're, you're ever in the presence of a really large animal. If you ever get out in, you know, in a zoo or something right up next to the elephants. Where that elephant, if it can't see you, it can step on you and it can squish you like a melon and it could kill you and it will never know that it did. Right? It steps back, you're a goner, it doesn't know, doesn't care, didn't even realize it, you're too small. Too weak, too little. This is like that, but infinitely larger, the great and mighty God. The problem is that as we, we lose the sense of kind of wonder at how great God is, when we lose a sense of how big He is, when we lose a sense of how absolutely marvelous and wonderful He is, it takes all of the heat and the sting and the glory and the grandeur out of the response that Jesus gives them. It takes all of the wonder away from Christ Jesus uh, when you see what he responds with. They fall on their face. They're absolutely petrified. They're absolutely terrified of what's going to happen. And what happens in verse 7, Jesus does something unique. And again, the grammar here is absolutely significant. Jesus comes to them. That word is used in Matthew 52 times. You want to know how many times it's used of Jesus? Short answer, twice. This is the first time. The other time is after the resurrection. Every other time in the Gospels, interestingly, you see people constantly coming to Jesus, but here, when his disciples are broken, when they're melted, when they're overwhelmed by the glory of God, what does Jesus do? Does he zap them? You should have known better. Does he look at them and be like, seriously, I told you so? He had told them so. Does he look at them and say, you told yourself so? They did that in the previous chapter. Instead, in showing his glory, in showing the Father's glory, he shows his kindness. For the first time in the gospel, Jesus approaches them and touches them. And again, you remember Matthew uses that verbiage to specifically refer to healing in most cases. He, it's the way that Jesus resolves the unresolvable. It's the way that Jesus fixes the unfixable is to approach the broken and to heal them through his touch. 
Heal them through His presence. Rise. Have no fear. Now again, for us as New Testament Christians, it's easy for us to think, well, I'm not supposed to be afraid. Jesus died for me. You're you're not wrong. They didn't have that going for them yet, though, did they? They didn't have the promise that their sins were forgiven. They didn't have the ability to look back and say, oh, it's all finished. It's all satisfied. They absolutely have reason to be terrified. And interestingly, Jesus, in complete kindness and complete gentleness, comes to them and and grabs them and says, get up. Don't be afraid. I have it under control. I'm in charge here. It's fine. I've got you. And I love how Matthew articulates it. They, 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 they begin to lift up their eyes, and he's clarifying that all of the others are gone, but the, the grammar here is exceedingly particular. They only see Jesus. It doesn't matter if there had been a million other people there. They wouldn't have noticed him. They only see Jesus. It's like that moment, my favorite part in weddings. The doors open in the back, the bride's standing there. I never look at the bride if I can help it. I look at the groom. Because that is one of the very few times that you get to see complete adoration in human form. A man looking down the aisle at his beloved and his facial expression is total adoration, enraptured with her love and her beauty, her goodness and her greatness. What the groom sees in the bride is grossly less than what they see in Jesus. And again, if you think about it, at any wedding, when the groom has that kind of just stupefied look on his face, if you were to ask him, oh, by the way, is she worth it? It doesn't matter what it is. He's going to say yes. Is it worth it to be poor for the rest of your life? Absolutely, she's worth it. Is all the the hard work and the arguing and the fussing and the feuding that you're going to have, you're going to, you're both sinners, is it worth it? Absolutely, she's worth it. Argument from lesser to greater, if the groom is obviously going to say it's, uh, she's worth it, would they here then say Jesus is worth it? Well, of course they will. He's going to cost them their lives. Is he worth it? Well, absolutely he is. Friends, I I think a lot of times when we struggle with those moments where we might not say, yes, Jesus is worth it, I suspect it's because we're not looking at him. We're looking at me. I mean, not Michael, like you're looking at yourself too. When we're navel-gazing and contemplating our own wants, when we're contemplating our own desires, when we're contemplating our own rights, our own entitlements, interestingly, those are the days where Jesus doesn't really seem that worth it because I'm not getting what I deserve.
My favorite illustration of this I've seen recently, I guess it was a uh, college basketball game, not this season, but I guess it was last season. I think it was college basketball. Uh, the center had gone down, one of the big men, maybe it was the, the power forward, I can't remember which, one of the big guys had gone down and made a really, really bad play. I don't remember what he had done, but it was bad. It was really bad. And so as he goes running down the court, getting ready to go play defense, he's running with his head down, just shoulder slumped. I mean, the perfect portrait of a defeated man. And the point guard was this tiny little guy, tiny little guy, who comes running up to his big man and grabs him, does the little chubby cheeks, and forces his head up. And the big man is like, no, he wants to be discouraged. He wants to be sad. And the guy grabs his jersey, grabs his face, and pushes it up. No, I'm not going to let you look down. I'm not going to let you be absorbed in the discouragement. I'm not going to let you be preoccupied with the failure of what's just happened. I'm not going to let you be preoccupied with the brokenness. We're going to do this together. Get your head up. It's time to play. Jesus does the same thing to the guys. He doesn't let them continue to just cower in fear. It's right fear. It's deserved fear. But he raises them up because he knows what he's in the business of doing. Redeeming and reconciling. The next paragraph quickly. As they go down the mountain, Jesus interestingly says, don't tell anyone about this until I'm raised from the dead. And we automatically think, well, he's talking about the crowds. Uh, Actually, he's talking about the other disciples. Which is, again, absolutely amazing thing to think about, that Jesus had his disciples keeping secrets from each other. Very interesting. Don't tell them yet. Uh, It's not time for them to know. Wait until the resurrection. And when you meet the resurrected Jesus, you can say, oh yeah, I've seen this guy before. (laughs) I saw him on a mountain. Let me tell you about it. The disciples then ask what is, I think, again, the most common sense question for them, again, knowing their Bible and knowing the time in which they're laboring. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Meaning, why do they hate you the way that they do? Right? The scribes have been using the Elijah illustration from Malachi chapter 4 against Jesus the whole time. We can get the impression to say that, look, Malachi says that before the Messiah shows up, Elijah will be here. Elijah's going to come and, and proclaim the glory of God. Why are the scribes saying that? Now, this is interesting because Jesus has just been talking with Elijah. He could have easily been like, guys, look, you just watched him. That was Elijah. You knew it. He's not going to say that, intriguingly. He answers, quoting roughly what the scribes have been saying. Look, Elijah's going to come, and he's going to restore all things. The Messiah will restore all things. That's roughly what the scribes have been saying. When Elijah returns, then after that, the Messiah is going to establish everything. But verse 12, I'm going to correct you. They were right in understanding Elijah. The the thing they were wrong about was who he was. It wasn't Elijah specifically. It wasn't Elijah in real person, uh, like reincarnated form or resurrected form. Instead, no, uh, that was fulfilled in John the Baptist. It was a, a typological appearance that he would come and serve the function of Elijah. 
Because the issue is that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been pursuing a religion designed in their own image, not a religion designed in Jesus' image. They've been pursuing a Messiah that fits their wants, their desires, and their needs. They're looking for a Messiah who's going to show up and lop off all the heads of the Romans. Rome's going to disappear. Israel Israel will return to power. And the Messiah will be the king of Israel forever. That's what they're looking for. That's what they want. That's why they have the triumphal entry. It's not ultimately because they want him to be Jesus and to be king. It's they want him to show up and kill the Romans. That's why they're all so angry when he goes and cleanses the temple. He's not their kind of Messiah. He's not their kind of redeemer. He's not worth it because he's not doing it the way they want. Jesus explains this at the end of verse 12. Look, I'm not the kind of redeemer you would have ever planned for. I'm not the kind of redeemer you would have ever expected. I'm not the kind of redeemer who's going to play by your rules because your rules are dumb and bad and evil and foolish. Instead, I'll do it my own way. And what is the tactic he's going to choose? Instead, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Glory, the Word of God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity wrapped in human flesh would choose to go onto a cross to undergo the wrath of God and to die there, really and actually die. A thing that is unthinkable. That the uncreated God would step inside creation to die. You see, friends, our response here, unfortunately, I think, is one that is very similar to the scribes. Where we love the idea of Jesus, but we love the idea of Jesus when he agrees with me. He's very clever when he does. But we don't love the idea of Jesus when he says things that are inconvenient to me. When he says things that challenge the way I want to live. When he says things that, that demand things from me. When he says things like he did at the end of chapter 16. That each person is to take up his cross, her cross, the means of execution. To execute their own flesh and to live in the fullness of Christ himself. Or like he said in Colossians, like we already read, that your very existence is in this place, on this planet, here designed not for your own wants, not for your own desires, not for your own life, but for the lives of those next to you and near you. That you've been placed in this planet, that you've been given the life that you've been given to be utilized in the church. Not according to your own wants. Friends, I, I think this is one of those great realities for the American church. We miss the glory of Jesus because we are so filled with a longing for the glory of me. Many of you want to grow, and I am glad that you do, and I'll give you right now, just in two sentences. You want to grow for the rest of your life. Every day, 
pray that the Lord would help you to forget about you and see Jesus and then read the Bible. Pray that the Lord would help you forget about you, that you would see Jesus and then read the Bible. That right there, that will take you all the way to heaven. And not just squeaking over the line. That's the recipe for a victorious life. One that's filled with the glory of Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus is clothed in glory even now. And we admit that we try to clothe ourselves in glory, and it is an exercise like the emperor's clothes. Constantly trying to pretend like we're clothed in glory, but everybody around us knowing it really doesn't work that well. And so we confess to you our sin, and we ask that in your spirit you would unite us to Jesus Christ for his name's sake. Amen.